Sitting in a meeting on Capitol Hill 15 years ago, a respected foreign policy analyst told me that the problem with most national security assessments coming out of Washington was that they ignored the elephant in the room, the United States and the impact of our domestic politics on the state of the world. Today's guest wasn't in the room that day, but he brings a rigorous analytical mind steeped in national security to his analysis of the world around us. He's Tom Nichols, this week on Story in the Public Square. Welcome to Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. Alongside me is my friend and co-host, G. Wayne Miller of the Providence Journal. Each week, we talk about big issues with great guests, authors, scholars, artists, and more to make sense of the stories that shape public life in the United States today. To help us this week, we're joined by Dr. Tom Nichols, an author, analyst, and professor at the U.S. Naval War College. Tom, thank you so much for being with us. Great to be back now, with you. Now, we want to stipulate up front that what you say today represent your views alone and not, necessar not necessarily those of the Department of the Navy or the Department of Defense. Correct. So duly stipulated. I want to begin, though, sort of um, uh, at, at sort of this where, where American foreign policy meets American politics. Uh, because a lot of times we talk about sort of what's happening overseas like it doesn't have anything to do with what's happening at home. Uh, you've worked both in American politics and you're a great student of American foreign policy. How are our current politics affecting America's role in the world? I think that's a really disturbing question because our alliances are unraveling. Um, we don't have the benefit of the doubt in the international community anymore. We've been losing that for a long time. I think the second Gulf War was a, a big blow to that kind of credibility. But now, I think, especially if you look at things like the recent NATO summit, uh, other leaders in the world are treating America like it's um, a rogue nation, like they, you know, they don't really know how to relate to us. Uh, because we don't have a foreign policy anymore. We have impulses. We have off-the-wall ideas. We have sudden um, movements and um, sudden uh, kind of inclinations toward a trade war, toward uh, you know a policy, and then stepping off of a policy. I mean, there, it's really. I think we're in parlous condition in the rest of the world. I think far worse than uh, even where we bottomed out in the 1970s after Vietnam. Is, is, the, is it too much to say, though, if you think about it from sort of our, our, our allies' perspectives who are extremely skeptical of the Iraq War uh, in the George W. Bush administration, uh, to then look at then, you know, eight years later, uh, the arrival of another president who seems to um, not be interested in maintaining alliances. Is at some point do foreign governments say, the United States can't be trusted? I think that's where we are now. And I think what happened after the second Iraq war was, again, a kind of loss of the benefit of the doubt, where I think some of our allies said, look, we basically agree with you, but we didn't want you to get that far ahead of us. We wanted more consultation. We, you know, we wanted something more solid than, than what you had. 
Um, I think that's very different than saying the United States is unreliable, unpredictable, not committed to the same values that we're committed to. I think this is a big difference between now and, say, the first, uh, the second, uh, first and second Bush administrations, um, where some of our allies said, look, we think this war was a bad idea, but we get it. You're, you agree with us about basic things, about things you know, freedom, um, human rights, democracy, the, the values that underpin NATO. I think now a lot of our allies are looking at us, and this is really hard to say, but I think a lot of our allies are looking at us and saying, we don't know what you believe in as Americans anymore. I, wanna, I just want to pick up one last thread here on this, on, on this foreign policy piece. Uh, the decision to withdraw U.S. forces from northern Syria. Which now, but it's the reporting is is murky because now we there, there's been subsequent reporting that U.S. forces are still fighting ISIS right. in northern Syria, so it's a little bit hard to understand what's going on there. But in 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 broad in the broadest context, what's your assessment of that decision and that policy? Disastrous, and it's disastrous for multiple reasons because it was uh, uh, the president made it clear. I got on the phone. This guy asked me to do it, so I did it. That. That is the worst possible way to make foreign policy. Um, he catches his own foreign policy establishment by surprise. He stabs a, an ally, not in the back, right in the front, uh, and makes it seem, again, like the, the Americans are not a people who can be trusted. And I think there may be people saying, look, that's Donald Trump, not the Americans. But I think what's important to understand is that overseas, the president is the embodiment of the American nation. And when the president does something like that and abandons an ally because a strong man in Turkey wants to engage in military, a military action, um, you know, that, that sends a message to the rest of the world. They don't spend a lot of time saying, well, I'm sure there are people who disagree with that. They say the Americans have made this decision. So allies losing faith is one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is adversaries. Talk about Russia. In, in this foreign policy era now, what does Russia see in terms of what does Russia see? You know, I, I, I sometimes wonder, um, I, I wonder if Vladimir Putin looks up at the wall of his communist predecessors and says, you gave up just a little bit. <laughs> no, another 10. I could actually see Gals you doing it. He's got to be looking up at Yuri Andropov and saying, if you'd have just hung in there for 10 years, we'd have had it. I know, look what I'm doing. Uh, you know, I mean, this is... It's um, kind of a field day for him, isn't it? It's, and and do, by doing nothing. I mean, that's right. the really remarkable Well, some disinformation, part. but... Well, I mean, the kind of operations the Russians are running against us are low-cost yeah. investments. I mean, the kind of stuff that they're doing with propaganda and fake news and Facebook ads and all that other stuff, um, that's pocket change. That's a rounding error in their budget. They, they're not, you know, they're, they're, they've created a frozen conflict in Ukraine, something that I will candidly admit as an expert, I would have gotten wrong 20 years ago if people had said that was possible. I would have said... The way the Russians are going to take on, you know, 40, 50 million people. Um, but they found a way to do it. Um, and I think that Putin probably can't believe his own good fortune in, in this. And I think it's not, let me try and be a somewhat bipartisan. I mean, my, my feelings about President Trump are well known. Right. But to be somewhat bipartisan about it, I think um, this is a long winning streak for Putin that goes back through even to Bush and Obama. Because I think President Obama was overly passive about the Russians. He wasn't interested in European affairs. His, he was focused entirely on the Iran deal, um, the pivot to Asia, which petered out and didn't really go anywhere. And so through inattention in the Obama administration and through outright affection from the Republican Party, which as a former Republican, I didn't think I would live long enough to see 
Republican senators repeating Putin's talking points, um, you know, is really a remarkable windfall for the Kremlin. It's 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 an unbelievable recovery in the space of just ten or ten ten or twelve years. So it's been uh, about three years since publication of your book, The Death of Expertise, and the subtitle was The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. Has that campaign continued, and what effect has that had in three years on democracy and the, and the public discourse? On, on all fronts. <laughs> it um, has continued. It, it, uh, it has continued. In some ways, it's gotten better. Um, I think, and I should also point out, um, I did not write the book related to American politics. Um, I started writing the article the book was based on in late 2013. Uh, the book was not about Trump, it was not about Italy, it was not about Brexit, it, it wasn't about any of that. It was my deep concern that something like Trump, Brexit, the Italian five-star movement, all these things, something like that was going to happen. I just didn't count on them happening all at once. Um, so, so, you know, some of that has gotten better because now over the past two or three years, we talk more about things like teaching children digital literacy. Uh, we talk more about, you know, we've brought Facebook onto the carpet to say, what is it you're actually posting on social media? Uh, but I think the basic problem remains, which is that Americans and a lot of other people in the developed world are resolutely ignorant and happily so about basic things. Why? Because it makes life easier and in some ways more interesting. Black and white or? Yeah, and I mean, why have to understand the details of the federal budget when you can just rail about giving money to foreigners? Uh, why understand where Ukraine is when you can simply say it's all a big plot to get the president? Uh, and this is not limited to the United States. One of the things, I'll, I'll brag for a moment and say, one of the things that took me by surprise about the book I thought I was writing primarily about an American phenomenon. The book's now in 12 languages. Wow. Uh, which totally, I'm, I'm happy, but I'm a little shocked and a little worried um, <laughs> that you know, this turns out to be a bigger thing than I thought it was. Um, and I think you know, if you t look at politics in places like Italy or Poland or Hungary or the Brexit debate in the UK, why learn stuff? That just becomes complicated and boring. You, you know, why get, let that get in the way of having a really emotional opinion? But, but is this a new phenomenon, unique to this era? Has this always been human nature? What, what does history tell us? You know, that's a great question, because when I first started writing this, people said, well, nobody likes you professors. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, okay, that's, that's true. Unless, unless you give a good grade, right? Well, I, I, I actually tell a, a, I tell a story in the book where my brother owned a bar, you know, and I, uh, I, I may have even brought this up the last time we talked, where I said, you know, a guy turned to my brother after I left, and he said, your brother's a professor, huh? And my brother said, yeah. And so, well, he seems like a good guy anyway. Yes. Uh, you know, that, that's normal, that yeah. people have a somewhat normal distrust of elites and intellectuals and professors. What's different now is they think they know more than those people. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's, it's not just, look, I don't understand this Ukraine thing and don't bother me with it, I support the president. It's people saying, Ukraine, I'm gonna explain Ukraine to you. I've done research, I have the fact, I have read enough memes on Twitter or Facebook. Yeah, the fact. And, so and now facts. I know the real facts. Yeah. And that's, that to me is the thing that has really changed. That's different. And well, that's dangerous.
We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard four times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at J.M. Lutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 17 books, including the recently published Kid Number no. 1. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is Dr. Tom Nichols, a professor at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, an author, and probably the best Twitter follow around. He certainly has the coolest ha Twitter handle, at Radio Free Tom. One of the, uh, I don't know if it's a fellow traveler or corollary, but one of the things that's happening at the same time is the rise of conspiracy theories uh, in American public life to explain all manner of things. And this, this predates Donald Trump. I think about the number of students who've come into my class and say, I know what happened on 9-11. I saw a YouTube video about yeah. it, right? How dangerous to the republic, to the ability to sort of make decisions based on reason, is this aversion to expertise and, and, and real facts? There, there's, a, there's two problems here. One is uh, conspiracy theories make life interesting, right? Um, you know, it's much more interesting to say, why are we about to have a French fry shortage? Well, nobody wants to learn about potatoes and weather and soil. They say it's it's big potato, you know. Get it, and, and it's the onion ring people who have undercut big potato. And it just makes it's a better story. People, you know, people want constant input, and I think this is a part uh, of the the story that we have to talk about. People are jacked into the internet all day long, and yeah. they are they are taking in um, petabytes of information all week. And they want it to be interesting. They want it to be fun. Conspiracy theories are interesting. The other thing is that conspiracy theories are empowering. If you feel overwhelmed by information and you think the world is just too complicated to understand, conspiracy theories are reassuring. They're a teddy bear you can hold, say, it can't, po like with 9-11, right. it can't possibly be that 19 guys with box cutters turn the world on its head in a day. Because that's too random. That's terrifying to think that that could happen. What you want to believe is that it took years of, and that it involved nation states nations, nations, and, and yeah. you know gigantic forces and Specter and yeah. you know Blofeld. <laughs> and the idea that it could just be a bunch of guys, you know, cutting people up on a plane is too easy well, and I, it's terrifying. I think that's human nature. I mean, it's a better yes. story. You know, conspiracy theories are hardly new. You know, JFK was barely dead when there were theories right. already. He's alive in Parkland Memorial Hospital. It was the mafia who did it. Right. He ran oh, off no, with no, Elvis. Right. He ran off yeah. with Elvis, and that was 1963. Yeah. So I, I they think do it does peak. speak. It, it, we do know, historically, cons conspiracy theories peak after moments of national trauma. They do. Yes, that after the like after World War One. After it, somewhat after World War II, after JFK's assassination, so it's almost like an emotional response. It, it's purely, and and this is where, you know, as a teacher, uh, you know, with, uh, with among teachers, you know, this is well, where I'm one Ed, teacher. I'm a journalist, and, and, <laughs> and, and, and as a as a guardian of the facts, um, you know, this is where education and facts are supposed to counteract human nature. Yeah, um, human nature. The idea that that it's human nature. There's a lot of things that are human nature that are bad. 
um, and the belief in conspiracy but theories is, this, is one of them. Is this in some respects sort of the, so there, there's, a, there's an old, uh, about 2014 or so, uh, a cover of MIT Technology Review. It's got a picture of Bono on it, and it says, technology is going to save democracy. Mm. And, and in 2014, it probably people grunted and said, yep, that, that makes sense to me. Five years later, that story seems a lot different. And what I'm wondering is that the ubiquity of information now, we've got fingertips on, the, on, on more information than the world has ever known. Does that, has that actually had a perverse effect on, yes. on, on the fidelity of the information? Think, think about it as a metaphor with food to say advanced agricultural methods and farming and science and chemistry are going to eliminate hunger, right? Because we're going to have so much food, which is true. But it's also the reason that we're all overweight, diabetic, dying younger, <laughs> you know, heart disease, because there is literally too much of it and we don't discriminate in what we eat. I mean, you know, there's plenty of food, but it's fast food and it's bad for you. Mm -hmm. um, there are plenty of calories to be had, but they're awful. Um, the same problem happens with information. I was a techno, I, I need to, I feel the need to plant this flag. I was a techno optimist. Um, I was a young faculty member in my first teaching job when I, when, um, Netscape arrived, and I called my colleagues, and I said, watch this. This is called a browser. <laughs> <laughs> and, that and, was the uh, dial-up era, I think. Uh, with the sound of freedom. You know, <laughs> the roar that came beep, out of beep, your... Beep, yep. Yeah. Uh, and, and I said, I thought, this is going to revolutionize the world. It will make democracy better. It, I think one place where it has achieved some promise is that it's helped to keep the global peace. Um, people are more connected with each other and feel themselves part, you know, I think it really has undercut some of the ignorance about other cultures and other places in the world. But it has also flooded us with cheap and easy information that actually confirms us in our biases, makes us lazy about seeking better information. Um, the tolerance for people to read books, for example, students. The, the ability they don't to, read books anymore. They I mean, I've, I've watched over 30 something years of teaching. My syllabus has had to get shorter um, things that I would have assigned to freshmen or sophomores in 1990, yeah. I can't even think about. Well, and I, would, I, 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 I tell my students that I will reward them if they submit a term paper that actually has a book as a source. Do you I, really? Yeah. I tried. Wow. I, tr I actually wow. tried in the 90s and, and uh, had to give up. I said, um, your paper has to include three sources that are physically located in the college's <laughs> library to make them walk into a bricks and mortar yeah. library. And I, you know, that was a romantic so, quest. So another element of the internet is speed. Today's yes. internet we're talking about. And you had a recent example of how speed and going viral. Oh no. <laughs> Tom, I'm sorry, I have to ask. You tweeted that you hate Indian food. Yes. I, and worse, Take that it. I said anybody who said they like it is lying. Okay. So, <laughs> so I, what I, happened? Tell us well, the story. There was a, a college student put out a call. He said, give us your most controversial food opinion. And I said... And you took the bait. I took the bait. <laughs> I said, you know, <laughs> of course he did. He's a preacher of the internet. And, and it's strange because people are always saying, can you please tweet about something besides politics? And I said, okay, this will be fun. <laughs> oh, boy. Boy, boy did I learn. Because we know and how the I story said, goes. I hate Indian food. And I, I said, no. I said, Indian food is terrible, and we all, we all pretend it isn't. And I was thinking of my colleagues, you know, who are always dragging me to Indian restaurants, and they're, you know, gulping water, and their faces are red, and they're sweating. And I always say, you can't... You can't be enjoying this. <laughs> you know? and, uh, and they're like, no, no, I love this. It's the hotter, the better. And I said, okay, fine. And I didn't think more, but I get up the next morning and people are telling me, you're in the Indian newspapers. 
And then I was in RT and the BBC and the Washington Post. And there was like this international moral panic because this, you know, dowdy, overweight, middle-aged college professor in Rhode Island didn't like Indian food and, and said something kind of, you know, sneering about people who do. And it did show how quickly information travels and how fast people form an opinion because they feel the need to form an opinion. The, the coda to all this was actually a really good uh, editorial in the Times of India, of all places, that said, everybody needs to calm down. You know, this is not that important a thing. But I think the internet rewards, I think the internet is structured to reward bad faith and instantaneous opinions. Uh, on Twitter on occasion, when something has happened in the world, people have said to me, Tom, what's your view? And I'm like, I'm still, I don't, I don't have a view on this yet. And inevitably, right, you're expected to today. To have and an inevitably, instant some, analysis. Boom. Right. When I say I don't, I haven't formed an opinion on this. I'm still learning about. It. People will inevitably say, "This is you don't understand Twitter. You know, you need to have an instant opinion." And I think um, that indulges a certain amount of our narcissism. I'm so important that I need to go on social media and I have to have an opinion immediately about something of great importance. Most of us Very don't. True. We can take a few hours. We can take a few days. So, so what ha what happened to you on Twitter after that tweet? What, what, what just briefly? What were some of the reactions? Um, you know, it was funny. Um, uh, I had a lot of friendly help. Um, of course, Padma Lakshmi from Top Chef asked me if I actually had taste buds, which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but some well-known Indian American um, figures, Preet Bharara, Neil Katyal, one of my former students, said, "Okay." We're just going to have to take you for Indian food and, you know, get it right. Uh, but there were also people that just, you know, went off. One, one woman went off on me about Churchill and colonialism and mass deaths and slavery. And I'm like, you know, the, again, this is what, but this is what's rewarded in the social media environment. That's true. And then it all sort of died down that um, my takes on food are terrible. And because I don't, I'm, I'll, I might as well just admit it here, because I don't like Led Zeppelin, my takes on music are terrible. So um, um, why don't you like Liz up? I, I just I can't. I would <laughs> stay away to heaven. It's all right. It's all right. It's all right. No, no. It's, it's, it's a safe okay. space. One, one, one uh, controversy <laughs> at a time. But so um, let, let me ask you this question, is. though, in, in, in all seriousness, this 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 appetite for fast takes, and I don't I don't want to be overly pessimistic and dramatic about this, but we have a political system that is based on a 17th century political philosophy predicated on the primacy of reason and the knowability of knowledge. And deliberation. Yeah. How do we survive? How does the system survive in this environment? I, I don't know. Uh, I have, after the book, after the death of expertise came out, and I was doing a lot of talks about it, you know, there were people, I would often get people angry in the audience saying, well, you're just defending, you know, knowledge elites and, you know, and, and Inevitably, somebody would say, the problem is Washington doesn't listen to us enough. And I inevitably would say, no, the problem is Washington listens to you too much. Because instead of taking in large mm. inputs from several directions, every member of Congress is now, instead of a representative who deliberates, is just a megaphone for a district. Say what we're saying, but say it louder. Yeah. Uh, That's and a very wise analysis. You know, this is this is not what our system was created to do. Well, and you factor gerrymandering into that too, and right. it creates really sort of safe seats that let people have very specific perspectives right. without a need to compromise. Right there, and there is no. Um, also, there's no public exposure from compromising. Mm -hmm. um, the people who try to you know sit down and work out deals um, don't get 
their moment in the sun during a hearing. Or they get primaried. Or they get primaried, but again, who's to blame? And this is, I'm actually working on another book. Um, where, Which we want to get into as soon well, as you finish this sentence. I, and where I argue that the people to blame are us, the voters. The, the, the people in, in democracies who have become so childlike, so narcissistic, so intent on uh, what they want without any compromise or discussion that they expect their elected rep representatives to simply be carbon copies of them, but with a louder voice. And I think that's incredibly dangerous. So the subtitle, the working subtitle of your book that you're working on is The Assault on Democracy, democracy from Within. Talk about that. What do you mean? The title is Our Own Worst Enemy. Yeah. Um, that, you know, I, I got tired of explanations for the corrosion in democracy, not just in the United States, but I really had chance to think about this a lot while I was traveling in places like Italy and Canada and the United States and Great Britain and other places. And I said, you know, uh, we keep blaming big forces of like globalization, right? Why are people angry? Well, it's globalization. Why are people angry? Well, it's immigration. Um, you know, there are a couple of interesting kind of factoids that make you wonder about this. Poland, to take an example, has had a tremendous upsurge in anti-Muslim feeling. What's the punchline to this? There aren't any Muslims in Poland. They're not there. This is political entrepreneurs taking people, giving them something to be mad about, even though it, there is no actual influence in it in their lives, showing them footage, again, through that immediacy that you're talking about, Wayne, with the internet and TV, um, where people f have decided, uh, people living in fairly affluent, prosperous societies have decided that they are living through the worst time ever and the system is to blame. The system is broken. And I, I, I have just, I've decided that what I'm writing about is that's nonsense. The system is not broken. People are the foundation of a democratic system. And no system can survive if people simply become, you know, rage addicted paranoids. Uh, who want their system of government to simply respond to whatever they were thinking in the last five minutes. Was it, it, was it Disraeli who said that democracy is a race between education and disaster? I think so. It's a, it's a great line. Yeah, um, right? and, it's, uh, and I think the information age is proving that um, over and over <laughs> and over again. Well, there's a difference between information and education. Right. Right? You can have access to information, but if you don't have a framework for thinking and understanding then all you've got is sand in a sandbox. And, and, and because of the immediacy, there's no reflection. Um, you know, information, you can read a book. Um, it takes time. You should think about it. You should put it down. You should see what other people have said about it. You should talk about it with maybe someone who's a, a teacher. Um, but um, now, you know, people literally, I mean, I, I, one of my pet peeves of Twitter is uh, people who criticize articles and haven't read them. <laughs> because they read the first. What we know, for example, on Google searches, people search things and they believe they've acquired knowledge when in fact what they've done is they've scanned a bunch of search results and developed an opinion from looking at the top 10 results. And that's the narrowing of the attention span where you just... You Down to almost it, nothing. You, yeah, you right. want it immediately, boom. If you don't have it, boom. But we're responsible for this. I mean, we, I, I think what people don't understand is how much of our system, and when I say our system, I mean democratic systems around the world, relies on norms like trust. We can't legislate everything. Um, we can't just keep passing laws to try to keep ourselves in line. 
That doesn't work. That's like saying, um, you know, in a married couple, that we have to have a set of rules that say, I will do this, you will do that. I will do if you love someone and you live with them, you, that sort of happens as a natural occurrence rather than you know, posting to say the duties of spouse one and the duties <laughs> of spouse two. We have, to, we have to get back to doing this with our, by ourselves rather than having people legislate it for us. It's a great place to leave it. Tom Nichols, thank you so much for being with us. That's all the time we have this week, but if you want to know more about storing the public square, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter or visit PellCenter.org, where you can always catch up on previous episodes. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis, asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square. <laughs>